Really thankful to get to be here with you this morning. Um, I want to read from our text this morning, which is Matthew chapter 5. So let's read Matthew 5, uh, 1 to 16, and then I will pray for us as we open God's word. Matthew 5, I'm reading from the ESV. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for our Savior and his teaching. Father, we pray that as we come to understand who we are, who he's made us to be as citizens of his kingdom, uh, may we, Father, live with the joy that belongs to the kingdom of heaven. May we represent you well and faithfully and fruitfully in this world. And so I thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. We pray that you would work through your word this morning. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I wish the world were different I wish it weren't like it is a lot of the time. You know, in Dubai, where I live, we have the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, which is, uh, I don't know how many feet tall, but it's the, the tallest thing out there. And the other day, somebody invited me to go to breakfast in this restaurant that's at the top of the Burj Khalifa. And so this restaurant, it's, it's actually, they have a big plaque, Guinness record. It's the tallest restaurant in the world, the highest above the ground. So we went, we had breakfast in this restaurant, and uh, it was very nice. And so we're looking out the window, and there's just this massive view all over the city. And so I've got the whole city in front of me and just, you know, kind of observing this, this place and, you know, hundreds of skyscrapers and trains going around and airplanes landing and cars looking like ants down there and just people moving around and going out the business of their life and seeing, you know, all the, the mosques and the minarets and just the whole city was out there. And I was just overwhelmed by the reality that this city where I live, that these people they're, they're lost. They're lost. They're, they're kind of entwined in the deceptiveness of false religion. They're, uh, because of that deceptiveness, it's, it, it leads to cruelty. It leads to injustice. It leads to blindness and to, to much suffering. And, and that's true in Dubai. That's true throughout the country of the UAE where I live. It's true throughout the Middle East and throughout the 1040 window, that part of the world where we live. And I wish it were different. I wish it weren't like that. And then I 
come home, come, come back to the United States where, where I'm from and where I grew up, and, and guess what? I see more lostness. I see a different kind of lostness. I look around here, and, and everywhere I see a celebration of what God has called sin. I see the, the elevation of foolishness and the, the, the mocking of wisdom. Even in the church, we see so much anger and fighting and division, and you know, just it, it becomes overwhelming, and I just wish it were different. I wish it weren't this way. So what do I do? And, and what do you do? How, how, do we, how do we change the world? How do we make it a different way than it is right now? Because that's what we want, right? We don't want to just accept the way things are and say, well, yeah, this is the way it is. Nothing we can do. We don't want to just accept the broken state of things, but we want to make a difference. We want to bring change. We, we want to know how would Jesus have his people live? How would Jesus have us be in, in our place, in our time, so that this, this brokenness of the world is, is pushed back and so that people are going to turn from darkness to light and give glory to our Father who is in heaven? So how should we do that? How does Jesus want us to live here and now to make a difference in the world? And in this text that we just read, he's going to tell us, and of course, Matthew 5, 3 to 16 is the beginning of a much larger sermon. The Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 to 7. And, but I think as in, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, these verses that we just read, they kind of form a, a little sermon by themselves. They're kind of the beginning of the larger sermon, but they're sort of a, a self-contained little message that's going to set the agenda for everything that comes after that in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we've all heard these sermons, right, that sort of have their, their three points, and so I got point one, point two, point three, and then I get to the end, and, you know, in closing, here's a couple points of application, and so that's a certain kind of sermon, and when I'm teaching our preaching class at the seminary, I tell my students, now, it's good to have maybe two sermon points, maybe three sermon points. You don't want to have many more than that, but then I read this text, and it seems like here in this passage, Jesus, in his sermon, he's got nine points, He's got not So today, all we're going to do is we're just going to follow Jesus' own sermon outline and follow his nine-point sermon that does have two points of application on the end. And we're just asking the question, with whom does God change the world? With what kind of people does God change the world? And so we get to verse 3, and he's gathering his crowd of disciples, and he starts teaching. And look at the first word in verse 3. What is it? Blessed. Blessed, that's the, the key word in this, in this text, right? You heard it as I was reading. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Each of the next nine sentences begins with the word blessed. That's where we get the name beatitudes. It just comes from the Latin word meaning to bless. And the word blessed, or the original word it comes from, makarios, it just means to be in a state of good fortune, to be blessed, to be satisfied, to be happy. And so we're asking the question, how can you change the world? And Jesus' answer is much less about your intelligence, about your skills, and much more about your external demeanor that flows from your internal disposition. You are, in a word, happy. You're happy. And he says it again. He says it nine times. Jesus' disciples are happy. But why? Why are Jesus' disciples happy? Well, let's look at it. You're happy, first of all, first point, you're happy because you bring nothing to God. You bring nothing to God. Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right there in that verse, that's the good news of the gospel, isn't it? 
The gospel is right there because all false religion, whatever the religion is, it has this goal of accumulating spiritual wealth. You go to the temple, you, you give the donations, you do the good works, you, you do all the, the things you're supposed to do, and, and you're gathering up good deeds. And so whether you're Muslim or you're Mormon or even you're a confused Christian, all you're trying to do is live on this treadmill of keeping the rules and doing all the good deeds and being able to gather that up and show it to God and say, look, God, here's my good works, here's my wealth of goodness that I present to you. Now I can be accepted by you. But there's a problem. The problem is you can never do enough. You can never do enough good things to outweigh the bad, the sin, the brokenness, because one sin is enough to condemn you before the perfect righteousness of a holy God. And so what happens when, when we're on that treadmill and we're on that quest to just keep doing and keep doing enough, inevitably that's going to lead to pride if I think I'm doing it, or to misery if I realize I, I never can do it. But here's this upside-down reality of the gospel, which says that salvation comes not by accumulating spiritual wealth, but by declaring spiritual bankruptcy, by admitting that your own works can never be enough, that only the perfect Son of God dying in your place can forgive your sin. It's not the healthy who need a physician, Jesus said, but who? But the sick. But the sick, and, and you're sick, right? But you have a physician, You have a physician, and when you cry out, God have mercy on me, the sinner, when you turn to that physician in repentance and in faith, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You're happy because you bring nothing to God. Happy are the poor in spirit. But then, number two, you're happy because your grief will end. Your grief will end, and so just imagine... You know, I know the, the NFL is getting ready to start. And so imagine it's like the, the biggest football game of the year. Okay, they're this huge game. And, and the, the outcome of this game is going to determine whether or not your team makes the playoffs and has a chance to win the championship. And so it's the biggest game of the year. And it's the, the fourth quarter. And we're at the two-minute warning in the fourth quarter. And your team is losing by 70 points. Okay. That doesn't look too good. So here, here we are. We're down by 70. Two-minute warning. The whole season's on the line. And here you are, and you're, you know, pacing the sidelines. you got the good seats, and you're, you're yelling, and you're cheering, and you got a smile on your face, and you're singing, we are the champions. You know, what do we say about somebody like that? You're not the champions. You're about to lose. You're down by 70 at the two-minute warning. You, your season is over. Cheering, you know, if, you, if you're 10 points down and you're cheering like that, hey, you're really optimistic. But if you're 70 points down, you're foolish. You're not living in reality. And see, some people say that Christians are foolish that way, that they're in denial, that, you know, we talk about Christian happiness. What we're doing is we're putting on kind of a false Pollyanna smile while the whole world's falling apart around us. Well, we're in good company with Jesus, though. Because that's not what he's talking about. But look what he says. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus is not naive. He's not in denial. He's not unaware of how the world works. Jesus, of all people, knows how corrupted this world is, how far it is from the way it was designed to be. Jesus knows the, the suffering of disease, of loss, and of sin. So as we follow Jesus, what do we do? We, we do mourn. We do grieve. We do weep with those who 
weep. We recognize the, the sadness that the world can have. We are, we're really, as Christians, we're the most realistic people in the world because we have a theology that explains the brokenness around us. We can, we, can, we can explain why is the world the way it is. In our rebellion against God, this world isn't the place it was supposed to be, so, so we do mourn. We do mourn. But as Christians, we can mourn with hope, can't we? We, we, can, we can weep, you might say, we can weep with happiness because as we weep, we anticipate that day in the presence of the Lamb when God is going to wipe away every tear from our eye. And so it's by faith that we know that we will be comforted. You know, you may have been taught at some point, you may have been taught that there's a difference between happiness on the one hand and joy on the other hand and that happiness is worldly and it's based on circumstances and how well things are going in your life but then there's joy and joy is something different and joy is kind of based on deeper spiritual realities and so you know we don't have to be happy but we should be joyful and so we can kind of be these you know kind of picture this sort of miserable grumpy christian with you know the angry face and the sour demeanor and kind of like i got the joy 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 down in my heart you know, well, where is it? Well, it's, it's down there. You know, it's down there really deep, deep, deep down in my heart. You know, we can't see it on the outside, but it's, it's there somewhere. And so that's, you know, we, we have people like that sometimes. But Scripture doesn't teach that distinction. Scripture doesn't teach that there's, there's, there's nowhere in the Bible we can find that there's a difference between joy and happiness. And certainly if there was, we would expect that here, Jesus would be talking about, well, we can mourn with joy rather than with happiness, right? We would think he would use the word joy here, but that's not what he does. He doesn't say you're joyful. He says you're happy. And he says it how many times? Nine times. Thank you. We're, we're, we're listening over there. So he says it nine times. And so if we're making an allowance for a difference between happiness and joy, we're not as radical as Jesus is. Because Jesus' way is upside down. In Jesus' kingdom, the sad are happy. And then number three, he says you're happy because you're not in control. You're not in control. Verse five, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek. And so you, what is meek? Let's think about the opposite of meek. What's the opposite of meek? It's, you know, basically the opposite of meek is kind of the, the one who has to be in charge. The control freak, the, the person who needs everything to be the way that they want it to be, the person who's going to advance their own cause by, by making plans and making the agenda and gathering up resources and not tolerating any deviation from their plan on their way to their little kingdom. You know, that's kind of the person that, that I can be tempted to be, maybe the person that a lot of us are tempted to be one way or another. But see, the thing is, when, it, when it's all about me being in control, then my happiness can come to depend on me maintaining that control. And so, you know, any deviation from my expectations is going to cause anger or frustration or, or fear or depression. But meekness, meekness is, it's recognizing that, that I'm not in control, but God is. I'm not independent and powerful. I'm, I'm powerless. I'm dependent on God and, and God's plans and God's providence for, for every single breath. Meekness is recognizing that the, the world is going to change, that all will ultimately come under the dominion of Christ Jesus as Lord, but that change isn't going to happen because of me and because of my efforts and because I force it with my plans, but because he does it. And so we're just servants, we're just messengers, and, and, and because of that we can be meek. And in that meekness, Jesus says, there's happiness. 
So Jesus has shown us, first of all, that you're happy because you bring nothing to God. Second of all, happy because your grief will end. Third, you're happy because you're not in control. And fourth, you're happy because you want what you need. You want what you need. Follow me here. Verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What a vivid picture. We all know hunger. We all know thirst. We, you know, in, in the imagery here, it's like I'm lost in the desert. I'm just dying for that, for that drink of water. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to expire if I, if I don't find some kind of sustenance. And the reality is, right, that everyone's thirsting for something. We're all longing for, after something. We're all feeling that, that urge and the desire to attain something or some things. But in our flesh, in our sinful nature, what happens is that we, we can thirst for things that don't lead to happiness. Because sometimes we're thirsting after sin or we're, we're thirsting after the opportunity to indulge our fleshly desires. Sometimes we're thirsting after wealth, to, to get more stuff, to get more possessions or more comfort. But, but Jesus is saying that, that our hunger can be tied to our happiness. And so often that's true. Because we think, I'm going to be happy if I get these things, but happiness is not in the things that our flesh desires. Because here's what's going to happen. If we're, if we're longing for sin or we're longing for worldly comforts, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to get it or you're not going to get it. And what's going to happen is you can get it and realize it's not bringing happiness. I thought I would be happy if I had this thing, and, but I'm not happy. Or you don't get it. And so then your whole life you're miserable because you're like, oh man, everybody else has this thing. Why can't I get this thing? I'm, I'm unhappy because again, you think if I had it, I would be happy. So you're always miserable. But Jesus says that the deepest longing of his people is for what? It's for righteousness. And I think what that is, that, that he's, 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 he's saying this righteousness, it's a right relationship with God and with others. That's what righteousness is in this context. And he's saying that desire for righteousness, for knowing God, for walking with God, being rightly related to his people, that's a hunger that's going to lead to happiness because that's a hunger that God promises to satisfy. You're happy because you want what you need. Let's keep going. Number five, you're happy because you don't get what you deserve. You don't get what you deserve because verse seven says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is, I committed the crime, but I didn't have to do the time, right? I got off the hook. I was, I was forgiven. I was not given what I deserve. And see, here's the thing. We all want mercy, but we have a hard time giving mercy. And so when, what we can do instead is that we tend to keep track. We keep track of how everybody's doing. You know, kind of how well they're performing against us. We, we know who's sinned against us. We know who's annoying to us. We know who's not quite, you know, operating the way we think they should operate. So we're, we're keeping track. We're, we're looking at everybody and we got these little, these little tally books in our head about everybody and how do they, how do they measure up? How are they keeping with our expectations? And so when we're doing that, we can't help but live in frustration because guess what? All these people are sinners and they're not going to measure up to your expectations. And so we're going to be frustrated. But Jesus offers his disciples freedom from that kind of frustration. He offers them the, the happiness that comes when you're not keeping track. He, he says we can treat people with mercy. We can forget about these things. We can forget about the, the, the way they are and the ways that they annoy us. We can treat them with mercy because we expect that we are going to receive God's mercy, that our sins will be forgiven through the blood of Christ. And he goes on, he goes on and he says, blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. And we talk about purity, and we just read purity, right, the baby dedication. And, and so you all know that the Jews were very concerned with ceremonial purity, right? And so they wanted to be clean on the outside and perform the right rituals to achieve that. But throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing them there's a different kind of purity that matters. He's pointing them deeper. He's pointing them to the heart and saying it's not about the external, the surface kind of purity, but about what's happening in the heart. Is the, is the heart pure? And the idea of this verse is he's saying when he says the pure in heart, he's saying from your heart, what we need, we, we, we need a single-minded undivided loyalty to God that affects every area of our life. That's the idea of purity. Your heart is focused. It's focused on the Lord, focused on the purposes of God, that nothing is getting in the way of that. Nothing is blemishing that or diminishing that or distracting from that. You're focused on God from the heart. And so we could say it this way. We could say you're happy because you know what's most important. That's verse 8. Because, you know, you think about the opposite. What if, what if our, we're not pure in heart? What if we're harboring hidden sin? What if we're kind of living that life in darkness and, you know, kind of staying away from the light? We don't want to be known. We don't want to be seen. That's a life of misery. But what he's saying here is that living in the light, living among God's people, not feeling the need to, to hide or to perform because we know that our every sin is atoned for and forgiven by Jesus Christ that's the life of freedom. That's the, the life of, of the unburdened conscience. That's the life of, of joy, the life that sees the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you're happy because you know what's most important. But then number seven, you're happy because you're like God. You're like God because when we say, I wish the world were different, a biblical way to express that thought is to say what we're recognizing is that the world is lacking shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that means peace. But it's not just peace the way we sometimes think of peace is like here's these two sides, two armies are fighting against each other, and then they stopped fighting, and so therefore it's peace. Peace is not just the absence of hostility, but it's, it's the positive state of things being the way they ought to be. Things all being in their right place, relating to each other as they should. That's the biblical idea of peace. And so Jesus is saying that his disciples are those who are looking for those places in the world where the world is not as God has created it to be. Things are not operating according to their design. They're looking for areas of brokenness in the world. And he's saying, my disciples are peacemakers. They're trying to bring shalom. They're trying to bring about peace in those areas where it's missing. And so, of course, we as Jesus' disciples, we can make peace in a temporal sense, and we should, by opposing injustice, by helping those who are hurting. But even more than that, we can look at biblical definitions of peace. You know, you think of Isaiah 52, it says, blessed are the feet of those who, among other things, publish peace. How do they do that? They do that by bringing the good news that your God reigns. And so that's what we're doing. We're being peacemakers by bringing good news to the world. And whether we're in Seattle or Kent or Dubai or wherever we are in between, happiness, it's saying, isn't in pretending like the world isn't broken. It's not in turning away from the real issues in the world, but in turning towards them and being God's agents of bringing about shalom. And so as we love our neighbors and as we address the brokenness around us and as we do that all the while proclaiming the good news to everyone, in that way, we're being like our Father who is in heaven. That's what I mean. We're being sons of our Father. We're doing what our Father does. We are being like God. 
So Jesus is saying, you, you see that when he says that you shall be called sons of God, he's saying, you know, when you're my disciple, that kind of thing, like being, being like God, being seen by God, being in relation to God, having the hope of the, the kingdom of God, these are the things that matter. Your relationship to God, how you live as a child of God, these are the things that matter. These are the things that bring happiness. That's where you're going to find happiness is how are you relating to God? Because the world is offering a different kind of happiness, isn't it? The world is offering a, a, a false happiness that's, that's seducing people and, and seducing Christians and saying that happiness is found by, by you just being you, you pursuing whatever things that your heart desires and you pursuing your, your sense of identity as long as that identity is one of the politically acceptable ones. Your, your, the world is saying that happiness comes from, from winning, Happiness comes from find, you know, gaining what is yours and crushing your opponents. That's where happiness is. It's in being right and proving that everybody else is wrong. That's where happiness is. And see, what the world is calling us to be, you know, what, what the news channels are calling us to be, what the websites that we're reading are calling us to be, what the talk radio is calling us to be, is the opposite of the person that's described in Jesus' Beatitudes. The world tells us to be rich in spirit, to get rid of the things that, that make you mourn, to be in charge, to, you know, not be weak, you know, get a nicer car, hunger and thirst for prosperity, punish your enemies, keep Christianity on the periphery, look out for yourself. That's the happiness the world is offering. And Christians are, are drawn in by that, aren't we? We're, we're enticed by this superficial, chintzy, worldly happiness. Or, or sometimes, you know what happens? Sometimes Christians just sit here and, you know, we kind of become okay with not being happy. We sit here and say, you know what? This is, this is pretty lame. The world's against us. They all hate us. They hate God. They hate the Bible. They hate Jesus. The country is going to hell in a handbasket. So let's just spend our days commiserating the terrible state of the country and complaining at each other and arguing with people who are against us. Let's just live like that because you know what? We're the exception here. You know, everybody else doesn't have it the way we do. We know that there's, maybe, yeah, we read the Bible and there's dozens or hundreds of verses that talk about the happiness that's characteristic of Jesus' people. But we think those Bible people, they didn't have to live in 2021. They didn't have to deal with the stuff we deal with. They didn't face all the idiots that we have in our country. They didn't have the pain and the suffering that I have. Surely I am not expected to be happy. Sometimes we think that way. But then... We get to Jesus' eighth point, and we could summarize it like this. We could say, you're happy even when people hurt Christians. Because look what it says in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. We could just do point nine. He says, you're happy even when people hate Christians. Because look at verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So Jesus is not talking to people who are living in a nice, easy country. He's not envisioning a situation where here you are and you're in this idyllic place and all of the laws correspond to biblical morality and everybody goes to church and the best Christians are the most respected members of society and people are regularly coming up to you and saying, what must I do to be saved? He's not picturing that kind of a situation, right? 
No, the situation that Jesus has in mind for his followers is one where claiming to follow Jesus and belong to a church and having a concern to obey Scripture is going to get you hated and excluded and lied about and maybe fired from your job or maybe having your your house or your property or your business taken from you unjustly. You know, the situation that seems to be increasingly true here in the U.S., he's saying, yeah, I'm talking to people like that. I'm talking to people who live in a situation like that or even worse because he's thinking of situations where following Jesus might get you beaten or physically abused or imprisoned or or even martyred. He's saying, that's the kind of situation where my people are going to live. You know, and I, I teach my hermeneutic students as we're, we're studying, you know, how do we study the Bible? And we talk about, hey, we've we got to look for the emphasis in passages of Scripture. And there's different ways the passages will bring out. Here's what the main idea is. Here's what we're emphasizing. Here, here are the main points. And so there's different ways that we can see that in Scripture. And so one way of bringing out emphasis is repetition, right? And so we've already seen that. We've seen that nine times Jesus is repeating the, the same word happy. And so we say, okay, this is a passage that's about happiness. That's the main idea, the, the joyful demeanor of Jesus' followers. But we can see also that these last two Beatitudes are given a place of emphasis in certain ways. And so first of all, they're at the end, right? And usually when we make a list, you know, it's true now, it's true then, we like to emphasize the last point. If I'm telling my family, here's the options for dinner, I say we could, you know, we could go to McDonald's, or we could go to Taco Bell, or we could go to In-N-Out Burger. You know, I, I'm voting for the third one, right? I, I, I like that one. And so we, we tend to emphasize the last one in a list. And these are also longer. You know, we look at these Beatitudes, and most of them are pretty short. Like, for example, the seventh Beatitude about peacemakers, it's only seven words in the original language. But then we get to persecution, and suddenly the eighth Beatitude is 12 words, and the ninth Beatitude is 16 words, so they're about twice as long, these last two Beatitudes, in terms of how many words are used to describe them. And then, of course, we see on this theme of persecution, we have two Beatitudes and not one. So it's doubled up. No other subject gets this, this repetition, this, this doubling. And so what we see from that is that this is what Jesus has been building up to. This is what Jesus wants to emphasize. And what he's emphasizing is, is he's saying that this happiness that he's been talking about, this, this happiness that distinguishes the demeanor of Jesus' disciples, this, this otherworldly happiness that comes from bringing nothing to God and expecting the end of grief and living without control and most wanting what you most need and not getting what you deserve and knowing what's important and looking forward to a day when you will be like God. That happiness, right, what we've just been talking about, Jesus is saying that that happiness is still there when people hurt Christians. And that happiness is still there when people hate Christians. And I want want you to see here that there's a structure to these Beatitudes, right? There's a common structure among them that each of the Beatitudes has a statement about happiness, like blessed are the meek. And then there's a reason for the happiness. The word for is there. Blessed are the meek. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. So there's a statement and a reason. And notice that for most of the Beatitudes, that this second clause, the reason part, it's in the future tense. You see that? For they shall be, is how my Bible puts it. We're happy because we're looking to the future. 
We, be, we believe how are things going to be. They, they're going to be like this. God is going to work like this in the future. We're anticipating the return of Christ. We're anticipating his kingdom in his presence. So seven out of the nine Beatitudes are pointing us toward this future reality that is ours in Christ. But see this. For the first Beatitude and the last one, the first and the last, these bookends, if you will, the motivation and the reason is not future, but it's present. The motivation is something that's true right now. And for both of those bookends, it's the same thing. You see that? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And see, Eastridge, this is true of you. This is true of you right now, that if you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and trusted Jesus as Lord, that yours is the kingdom of heaven. That if you've come to Jesus with poverty of spirit and said, I am a sinner, I deserve judgment in hell, and only by Jesus dying in my place and taking my sin upon himself can I be saved, I'm crying out to Jesus as Savior, he's now your king. And you now live as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, not only as a future hope, it is a future hope, but it's also a present reality. And Jesus is saying then that for his disciples, your emotion in your spirit, in your demeanor, in your conversation is supposed to be marked much less by your environment where you live and by the culture that you're, that you're operating in and the conversations and the entertainments that go along with that, much less by that and much more by the reality that you have this identity. And it's not your family identity, it's not your national identity, it's not your racial identity or your sexual identity, but it is your eternal identity that yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that's what it's all about. That's where we find our happiness. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus' disciples were excited and they, they had had some ministry success. He'd sent them out, some good things happened. They come back and they're kind of rejoicing. Oh, look how well things went. And what does he say to them? Jesus says, nevertheless... Do not rejoice in this, that spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He's saying that's what you rejoice in. So, so when things are going great and when you're, you're having success, if you win the lottery, he's, he's saying, hey, be happy about that, okay, but be happy even more because you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And he's saying, then when disaster strikes and when your health fails and when loss mounts and when there's reason to mourn, even then... You're still happy because it's still true that you're still a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so here's the Apostle Peter, right? You, you, Jesus is teaching his disciples and others, and Peter is standing right there, right? And so Peter, he's listening, and he gets it because Peter would go on, right? He'd go on to preach the gospel all over the place, and 30 years later, after Peter had witnessed Jesus being beaten and tortured and crucified after Peter had personally been beaten and imprisoned for his faith, after Peter had seen so many of his friends and fellow disciples martyred because of their belief in Jesus Christ just before Peter himself was crucified upside down, church history tells us, as a martyr for Christ. Look what Peter writes. Turn to 1 Peter 3 for a second. So it was about 30 years later. He writes in 1 Peter 3.14, 3.14, he says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You'll be blessed. He, he was listening. 
And he remembered it 30 years later. And after 30 years of life and ministry, he said, this is still true. This is still true that if you suffer for righteousness sake, you're happy. You can be happy. It's not theoretical for Peter. He had suffered and he was happy. And then 414, look at the same book, chapter 4, verse 14, he goes on. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, so that they don't like you, they're insulting you, they're making fun of you, they're criticizing you. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Same word. You're happy. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He's saying, this is a permanent happiness. This is a fearless happiness. This is a resilient happiness. This is a supernatural happiness that comes from the spirit of God. And so in the whole passage up to this point, there hasn't been any command, right? He's just stating the facts. This is how it is. This is what's true if you follow me. So he's given us this nine-point sermon about the kind of happy kingdom citizens through whom he's going to change the world. It's more like you are, not so much you do. But just like the good Baptist preacher Jesus is, he's going to end his sermon with a couple points of application. Okay, so let's see those applications. We get to verse 12, and we see the first imperative verbs of the passage. Okay, here's the first commands in the whole passage are in verse 12, and there's two of them, and they repeat each other. Look at it, verse 12. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you're happy. He's told us this nine times, right? And he's told us why we should be happy. So what do we do? How do we apply that reality that we as Jesus' disciples are happy? He says, be happy. Be joyful. You, you are happy, so be happy. And he, has, you know, he hasn't lost track of where he is in the sermon, and he's not you know, contradicting himself in a circular way. Uh, it, 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 it's kind of like a while back I was on a trip. I was traveling with my wife, and it was our anniversary, and we were going somewhere, and I thought, you know, I carefully, like, budgeted the thing, and I had enough money in my bank account for, you know, the food and the hotel and all this. And so we're there on the, on the trip, and I go to the ATM, and I say, okay, I just need to get a few bucks for the, for the dinner or whatever. And I go in the ATM, and my, my card is declined. They say there's an error with your card. And I try it again, and it doesn't work, doesn't work. And then I go to a, a different ATM, and it doesn't work. And so something's gone wrong with my ATM card, and I can't get any money out. So I actually... You know, I, I have the funds that I need, theoretically, in my bank account, but I don't have them, you know? Like, I got two bucks in my pocket. So suddenly I'm thinking, okay, like, how am I going to, like, eat for a week on two bucks, you know? And so I, I had the funds, but I couldn't get at them. And we're kind of like that sometimes, is that, you know, he's saying this is a, a danger that even though we actually possess this happiness, we might be tempted to live as if we don't. To live live as if we don't have this happiness because of we're in this broken world and we do being hated and slandered and persecuted that's not easy that's that's really hard and that is going to give us the temptation to become unhappy to become sour to become frustrated to become angry we're going to be tempted to live like unhappy people even though to us belongs the kingdom of heaven And so we could give his application this way. We could say, wherever you go, whatever they do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. 
Because your happiness matters. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that no matter the country, no matter the situation, no matter the persecution, he's saying your happiness matters. And you need to focus on that. You need to look at that. And I think he's putting it here. He's putting it at the front of the Sermon on the Mount because as he's going to go on to talk about different topics, he wants to say this is all in the context of prioritizing happiness. Because I suppose if he didn't, we could go on and we could read later in the Sermon on the Mount about anger and about lust and about marriage and about divorce and about relationships and say, okay, I can just do all those things. I can follow all of those rules. And if I do all of that with unhappiness in my heart, that's okay. If I obey unhappily, I'm still a good, healthy Christian. And Jesus is saying, no, this is the first thing. This is what comes here at the beginning, that unhappy Christians are unhealthy Christians. Saying, we got to find that happiness. We got to find that happiness. Brothers and sisters, we need to prioritize that happiness. That's what Jesus is saying to us today. We've got to use the happiness as a diagnostic to say, if that's missing, what's going on here? There's something wrong here. If I'm unhappy as a Christian, something is not right in my life. I need to, to, to figure out what's going on and prioritize that and strive to get back to that place of being happy as Jesus has called me to be. And you say, oh, you're just telling me to put on the fake smile and, re- and you know, li- live life. And I'm saying, no, Jesus is telling you to rejoice from your heart. It's a command, and this command has no exceptions for COVID and no special cases for unemployment or for chronic illness. There's no suffering that's too great. There's no opposition that's too strong, no hatred that's too intense, because none of it compares to the joy that is set before us as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So it's a command that applies to our worst moments when we're suffering unjustly for righteousness like Jesus. And it's a command that applies to our best moments, to every other moment as well. That ki- because kingdom citizens, we don't seek out opposition, but we do expect it. And when it comes, our first priority is not to escape it or to fight it or even to mock it, but to maintain our joy in Christ amidst it. So let's prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. But that's his first application And there's another, and and we'll close with this to see a second application. We're going to look at verse 13 to 16. And I know this guy, uh, this guy, he's he's a family member of mine. Let's call him Jim, not his real name. And he's a prepper. Do you know what a prepper is? A prepper is someone who's, who's concerned about the collapse of society and the end of the world and all these, you know, zombie apocalypse, whatever might be out there. And so we got to get ready. And so we got to make sure we have plenty of guns on hand. We got to make sure we have a lot of food stored up in the garage and, you know, knives and flints and all the, all the things we might need if everything goes haywire. He's, he's going to be prepared for that. So that's, that's Jim. So one of the things that Jim wants to be ready for is the collapse of the banking system. He doesn't, he doesn't trust the banks. And so he's got, he's got a good job. He's got, you know, plenty of savings. And so he gets all of his savings and he wants to convert them into gold. And so he takes his savings and he puts them, he's got gold bars that are kind of his life savings. The, the trouble with gold is you got to put it somewhere, right? So where does Jim put his gold? Well, here's what he does. He's, he's got these gold bars, you know, whatever they are, little, little nuggets. And he put them in these five gallon paint buckets in his basement and in the paint buckets, there's the gold bars in the bottom, and he dumped on top bags of kitty litter, okay? And he's kind of banking, literally, on the idea that if the thieves come in, you know, looking for treasure, they're going to be so disgusted by the kitty litter that they don't find the gold that's in the bottom of it. So that's kind of Jim's strategy. 
And I say that because when we look at these verses in 5, 13 to 16, Jesus uses kind of three images, right? They're very familiar. The, the salt, the light, the city. And, and by this repetition, again, repetition, three images, he's repeating one idea. He's saying, don't, don't hide what you are. Don't hide what you are. Don't, don't put your gold in the kitty litter, if you will. Don't, don't make your salt tasteless. Don't put your city in a, you know, in a valley. Don't put your light in a basket. Don't hide the treasure. Don't hide what you are. And, and what are you? Well, you're happy, right? He, he said it nine times. You're, you're happy, you're happy, you're happy, you're happy. So be happy and don't hide it. Don't hide the happiness that you are. That's what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying we, we need to show the world the happiness that is ours in Christ. We need to be people who are memorably happy, who are compellingly happy, who are happy around others in such a way that they want that happiness. They long for that happiness that can't be explained. It's a happiness that's there to be shared. And so we could look at these applications. We could say, first of all, wherever you go, whatever they do, prioritize the happiness of Christ's kingdom. But then, once you've found that happiness, we could say wherever you go, whatever they do, preach the happiness of Christ's kingdom. Because guess what? We are here to change the world. He says that in verse 16. He says the goal here is so that they, that's the world, the unbelieving world, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. We want the people of Washington to be saved. We want the people of America and of the UAE and of Iran and of Saudi Arabia and India and Pakistan and all these countries. We want them to be saved, to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. We want people who don't know the gospel to hear it with clarity. We want the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That's the the end to which we devote our labor and our ministries and our partnership and how that's going to happen he says in 5.16, it's going to happen when your light so shines before others. It shines in what way? It shines in, the way? it shines in a way that's not hidden. And there's certainly more to this light than happiness. It's all that's involved in reflecting the character of God we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. But it's certainly not less than the happiness that he's just talked about nine times. We're happy and we're, we're here to deliver happiness. We're ambassadors of joy. We are messengers of a new world. We're, we're here with the mission to invite people to this kingdom, this kingdom where there's no mourning and no sorrow and no pain because we're the servants of a king who loves you and has designed a way that is good for you, that you can live with hope in him and li- you live in his presence one day. We're calling people to, to come away from these false artificial happinesses because real happiness can be found and we know where. But see, that's a message that doesn't work very well when it seems like the messengers don't believe it. You see? And so when our priorities are secular and when our hopes are material and when our demeanor is kind of embattled, when we say, oh yeah, well I sure I would be happy if only the Supreme Court would go my way. See, our message is life, but our aroma is death. We've been given gold to share, but we've put that gold down in the kitty litter. You see? When I speak the message of Christ without showing the happiness of Christ, I'm communicating a misleading message. So friends, we need to tell the world how good it is to be a Christian. We need to show the world the happiness that is ours in Christ. We need to go into the world and make disciples of all nations and to do so as happy people who are proclaiming the gospel and the happiness of Jesus' kingdom. One of the ladies in my wife's Bible study, she went through recently a, a horrible time. Her, her husband 
was physically and verbally abusing her. Eventually, he divorced her, walked away from their family. She's been through, literally through, through hell. And so as part of this divorce proceeding, our, our friends from, uh, from Africa, and part of the divorce proceeding in the UAE is the court mandated that she had to go see this psychologist and get kind of her mental fitness evaluated and, and so on. And so they sent her to go get this counseling, and she didn't want to go, but it was required. So, she's, uh, so our friend is sitting there with this Muslim doctor, and the Muslim doctor says, okay, tell me about your situation. And our friend Marissa, she said, you know, I, I resolved that I was just going to use the opportunity to, to share what Jesus had done for me. And so she basically just shares her testimony and shares how she grew up in Africa. And, you know, she, she never knew about Christ. And she came to the UAE for a job. And she had this terrible marriage situation. And through it all, the Lord used that to bring her to a place of desperation. The, somebody gave her a Bible. She started reading it. She came to church. She heard the gospel. She was saved. And so she's just telling this, this psychologist all the Lord has done for her and transformed her life and just radiating this, this joy and saying that, you know, she's even thankful for all the things that she suffered because the Lord has saved her through that. And so, so this went on like that, and this was supposed to be kind of the first of several different sessions. And so they get to the end of the hour, and the Muslim doctor looks at her and says, you know, there's, there's no need for you to come back next week. He says, I really can't help you. He says, because... I need what you have more than you need what I have. And friends, the world needs what we have. The world needs what we have. And so let's go. Let's go into those moments where happiness is least expected. And by displaying a happiness that couldn't possibly come from this world, Let's show the world the glory and the power of God. And in that way, trust that he will use our joy, that is a supernatural joy of the Holy Spirit, to make disciples of all nations. So let's pray. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters here. May you be at work in this church and in our world. May you give us the joy that comes from the gospel. May we radiate that happiness to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.